When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he misread the title of Dominaria United. He thought it was Dominaria United because he thought it was a new surprise unset. It's Matt Morgan. You know, today I found myself staring at a bottle of orange juice for way too long. And I swear they just need to stop putting the word concentrate on those bottles. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I'm, I, I'm glad Dana gave me the pity laugh, at least. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I heard that, too. I'm the, glad the, that the, was... the silence was pulpable. <laughs> we, never mind. We got to be done. That was brilliant. <laughs> okay. Up next, he doesn't have any gray hairs. He just prefers to think of his haircut as silver bordered. It's Dana Roach. Um, why does the Norwegian Navy have barcodes on all their ships? So they can Scandinavian. There we go. That got it. Uh, you're, you're stealing another joke circa 2019 from my archives. Oh, it's man. okay. I did that, love... did that sail over Joey's head? I I got it. I did a, a flurry past you. I love you, Dana. And Matt, I love that you have like spreadsheets. Like, you know, you right, have right. like the a memory. Spreadsheets, yeah. <laughs> I, it's all up here in my database. Scryfall <laughs> records magic cards and I record bad jokes. Nice. There we are. EDH Rec. We're all about data and dad jokes. Anyway, this is the EDH Rec cast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? We want to talk about how we update our decks when a new set comes out. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Basically, I think when you pitched this, you were kind of like, how do we like manage to find cards, new cards to play, even despite product overload a little bit too? Is that kind of the vibe we're going for as well? I mean, it's a never-ending process of like updating decks. Basically, if you do it every time a new set comes out, there's n <laughs> it's there's never any rest for the wicked. So um, it gets yes. tougher and tougher every time something comes out to to make those changes. So yeah, that would be useful to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, because you're right. It can get a little bit tricky as a process. So let's get to it for this episode. But before we dive into our main topic, we do have a couple of quick shout outs that we would like to do. We would like to start by thanking Chase, uh, also known as Mana Curves, for their help with the post-production on the show. You can find them on Twitter at Mana Curves. Throwing in a quick update here, too, we also want to let people know that we will be attending the Magic Summit event in November. This is an event run by Kingdoms in Salt Lake City, Utah on November 11th through the 13th. And they've got a lot of really awesome guests lined up, including folks like Rachel Weeks, Esmond from Quintessential Commander, Sheldon Mennery, and 
Brandon Sanderson, and also us. So come hang out and play some games with us in November, and you can use the code EDHREC when you buy your ticket to the event, and that'll get you a 5% discount. We're just excited to hang out with you all at events, so don't be shy. Come say hi. We're just really happy to see all of our friends and to get in some rad games with our awesome listeners. One more time, that code is EDHREC when you buy your ticket at mtgsummit.com, and we'll see you in November. And if you would like to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to join the Discord community that we have going on, whether you want to see all the episodes a day early, you want to see challenge stats over the years and more, you can do all of that over at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And as always, we have that very special tier where we just give people shout outs just for signing up, just for supporting us, because we definitely appreciate it. So this week, I want to give a very special shout out to Nick Journey, whose favorite band headed up by Steve Perry, <laughs> the one and only uh, train lights. He's a lonely boy living wow. on the boulevard. Uh, uh- so I you won't gotta, stop believing. You got to stop. You got to stop. And the that's, journey that he's going to take. That, that, that's an awesome name. Really rad name. And thank you, Nick, so, so much for the support. Okay, let's just, before Matt can make any other horrible jokes, let's, let's you know, get know, We'll have to go our separate ways from this joke. <laughs> we are getting into the main episode. Okay, <laughs> let's get to it. We are talking about trying to keep up uh, updating our decks and how tricky sometimes that can be. So, Dana, let's actually just go ahead and pass this topic right back to you because of the three of us I do think that you are the person here who updates their decks most frequently so I think you probably have the most experience with how tricky this can sometimes be to find new cards that are definitely things you want to put into your deck well and here's why this is I, I think a topic now more than it maybe once was so I, so I can th- I think back to the days you know 2014 ish um and I was playing Commander, you know, 40 years ago when that occurred, or, or so it <laughs> seems like. Um, but I remember, like, sets coming out, right? So you would get the whatever the block was for the year. There would be three sets there. There would be a summer set, and there would be a couple Commander Precons. Number one, there was a big gap between all of those sets, so you had plenty of time to look at the cards, get a feel for them. If you were playing standard or were going to drafts or whatever, you'd see those cards get used. Like, oh, that might be useful for my commander deck. Um, you just had all the time in the world to think about those things. In addition to that, they weren't really making cards for commander outside of those commander precon decks. So there were less sets, and there were also way less cards in most of those sets. I remember a lot of years I, I I would get the full spoiler list for whatever set it came out from, you know, cons of Tarkir block, say, and I would go through all those cards and I'd be like, well, there's there's one card here from my Death Touch deck. This one might be interesting in my Enchantress deck. Hmm. It, it, that was it. So I'd, I'd have like one, maybe two cards that might fit what I was looking to do. It was relatively easy to make those changes. That's not the world we are in in terms <laughs> of magic anymore, where we are getting you know, eight-ish sets a year sometimes. Yeah. And not only are there twice as many sets coming out, they are intentionally filling those sets with a bunch of commander cards. So there are many of t- many times when I, like at the end of whatever the spoiler um, period is for the set, will go over that list. Like there's seven or eight cards for every one of my decks that I'm at yeah. least considering to put in there. And, and that happens you know, eight to 10 times a year, it feels like. So long gone are the days when I look at like, oh, this one card might work. You know, what's the worst card in my deck? I'll make that swap and move on and, and, and test it out. 
Um, it's just way more complicated than it was back, you know, eight to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely feel that. And, and it's because like sometimes they're obvious, right? Like sometimes you see like, okay, the new Basaju just came out and it's just like, yeah, I would be hard pressed to argue I shouldn't play this in any one of my green decks or, or cards like that. Or the new Vornclex came out in call time and it was just like look at this card that has plus one it's a walking doubling season i'm all about this i totally this is obvious i definitely want this from my plus one counters deck it's like some of them like totally smack you in the face and it's like really obvious but then like the list keeps going and there's a whole bunch of other more subtle stuff in the rest of the set too and, and you're right it does build up it's just like dang i want like seven cards from this set and there's th this is the thing that makes it tricky there's no way i'm actually going to add all seven of those cards to my deck like yeah, right. i might only actually add in only one or two that stand out because first of all, I can't afford all of those for all of my decks. And second of all, I don't have the deck space. Like when, if I did acquire all those cards and then try to force them into the deck, I probably actually wouldn't end up getting all of these exciting new things into the deck because the deck is really solid already. And I don't have seven bad cards to cut. So yeah, it gets, it gets really, really hard in obvious and in subtle ways. Well, I think you just said something very important to keep in mind, Joe, is uh, you don't have seven bad cards to cut. Often days you don't have any bad cards necessarily to cut from decks. That's just where we are with Commander, with Wizards of the Coast designing cards for our format. Uh, it's it's really hard these days to come into a a deck in the wild that you're going to look at and, and the person says, yeah, this, this card is just actively bad, but I just didn't have anything else to put in there. Mm. Oftentimes people are going to have something that's either going to be more on theme, more efficient, whatever that... Unless they're making a, a willing choice or they're just very, very new to the game, which that, that certainly happens too. There's more players coming into the format every day. Literally every day this format's growing. And so, yes, you, you might sometimes find somebody that has, you know, a brand new deck with just kind of cards that they had. That's certainly a situation. But if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you don't have a deck that has an actively bad card to cut, which makes those decisions all the more difficult to make. Well, and then on top of all of those factors... They're also reprinting cards at a rate that they weren't doing in the past. Mm -hmm. And maybe that isn't enough for some players who will still complain, but like they're definitely, <laughs> there's just more reprints every year than we've seen, that we were seeing way back eight or 10 years ago. So like back then, maybe you were in a situation where, okay, three visits would clearly be a great card in my green deck because it goes and gets a forest mm -hmm. or a, you know, some kind of a land with a forest subtype and the land comes into play untapped. That's amazing. I will definitely run a second copy of Nature's Lore, except for it was $75. Right. So like, well, I guess that's just, I, that's just not worth it for me. It's a cool card, but like it's not worth a single, you know, okay land ramp spell for that much money. So I'm just not going to run that. And then it gets reprinted and drops to like 250 Like, okay, well, that's a whole different deal now. So now I have to find room because it is a definite upgrade over Rampant Growth, say, or something in most of my green decks, do I swap out Rampant Growth or do I want to just put this reprint in too? So th there's just so many factors that have all kind of came together simultaneously in the last couple of years. It's just changed the game when it comes to upgrading decks. Well, and, and that kind of brings into, there's two very different types of sets that bring stuff around. At least in my mind, it's, it's new sets and reprint sets because... Like you mentioned, Dana, gone, long gone are the days of you had to wait two years for a modern master set to come out. And, and that's how we got right. fetch lands reprinted or anything like that. You know, now there's Commander Legends sets, there's double masters, and there's pre-cons and all these different ways that Wizards of the Coast is actively reprinting cards. So the nice thing is if you miss a new card when it's first printed, you might be able to get a reprint in the next six months to a year. And it's just going to remind you, oh, by the way, this card's really, really cool. Uh, you may want to consider this. 
Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want meaningful reprints more often always because sure. the game certainly gets very expensive. Yeah. But I'm certainly happy that Kindred Discovery is no longer $50 as well. So like, yeah, it's I, I'm always going to want more. I'm always certainly going to want more. The reprints aside, though, like it really does feel like there's kind of this balancing act that we have to do when there are new cards worth considering, though. Like the the there are two types of things that stand out to me when a new card comes up that force me to evaluate whether this is a card that I definitely want for my deck or not. So, and I want to see whether this resonates with you guys, because I feel like these are two very conflicting things. They are, the, the first type is like, this is practically a duplicate. So for example, the card Thirst for Discovery came out in the Innistrad blocks, and that is like an instant speed, three mana blue spell, draw three, then discard two, unless you discard a basic land. And that's a lot like the cards Thirst for Knowledge and Thirst for Meaning. And those are two cards that I'm already running in my Mimeoplasm deck. So I know that I'm probably going to want to play another card that is basically an exact duplicate of that. Like, basically, this is the same type of card, or it's the same type of card, but maybe it's even better for my deck. So that's the type of thing that I will definitely pay attention to as, like, yes, I definitely want to acquire this card and try to find room for it. But then there's the other version, which is, like, this card comes out and it fills a complete gap in my deck that my deck doesn't do at all, which is a very different type of beast. So, like, I feel like usually the things that I kind of default to when I'm looking for new cards in my deck are... Cards that do a thing I'm already doing and maybe do it a little bit better or cards that do something that my deck absolutely can't do at all yet. Does that resonate with you guys? Yeah, tr trying to make that decision, I guess, and that's this is probably a good thing to, to start talking about in a little more detail, is, is once you've made that list of cards and had something catch your eye, how do you decide what you want to cut or if your deck has room for it? Like that's... I, it, like I said, it was easy back when you had bad cards in your deck because there just <laughs> right. weren't enough options that provided you with the thing you want. Whether it was not enough tribal cards that did it or whatever theme you were running, there weren't enough cards that, that filled that role. That's just not how it works most of the time anymore. Um, so, so now you have to make a decision like, okay, I want to add this, you know, thirst for whatever. Do I want another one? Do I want to replace one of the existing ones? Um, <laughs> It, how do you make that determination? And I, I guess I will start by asking you, Joey, what like what are you looking at there when you see that thirst card? And you're like, okay, it's a, it's a draw spell that's going to put things in my yard, mm -hmm. which are things that my this particular deck wants to do. What is your determining factor? How do you make that call? I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's very helpful advice for everyone listening right now. <laughs> um, but no, I. I, I think I basically, this is something we talked about in a couple of other shows before, about like, I am very strict with my sections index. Like, I will yes. have a card velocity section. I will have my uh, card advantage section might be different than that. I'll have my mana acceleration. I'll have my removal or my protection or something. Like, I tend to be very strict with categories in my decks. And there are certainly types of cards that flit over between different types of uh, categories like that. Like, speaking of the Mimeoplasm, for example, that one is one where I'm very strict with the creatures that go into the deck. So, the Galta, primarily hunger is a favorite of mine in that deck because that is a 12 power creature in the graveyard so that works for mimeoplasm in two different ways that could be the thing that mimeoplasm eats to become a copy of because it's a big trampling creature so then if i give it more counters it still has a form of evasion to help me smack through with a bunch of commander damage even if an opponent tries to trump block i still got that trample but galta also has 12 power and therefore that would be 12 plus one counters if i want that to be the bonus plus one counters uh use galta for that purpose instead so there's certainly cards that cross purposes both and so that is, I guess, where I start when I come, when I see a new card, I'm like, does this fit into a category of cards like that? So like this new thirst card, this fits into a card velocity or a fill the graveyard type of category. 
most likely I'm going to compare that card against other cards that are already in that same category, those other Thirst cards, for example. I wouldn't swap a Thirst card out for a Galta type of thing, I think is probably where I start. But even then, it's not always the case. Sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I need to change the density of creatures that I have in this deck because I actually have more than I need now that I'm getting a new draw spell. So like, it's, it's more of an art than a science, but usually I would go by my strict categories. I think asterisks. <laughs> it's kind of where I'm at. No, I, I think that's kind of the same thing I have defaulted to doing as well for a couple reasons. Number one, it's just a little bit easier. <laughs> it's easy. It's a little bit easier to be like, okay, I'm, I'm adding this ramp spell, so it makes sense to take out a ramp spell. Um, number one, because presumably you've been playing this deck some amount of time and you're kind of comfortable with the balance. So being able to, you know, I guess in theory, upgrade one thing to a slightly better version of that same thing doesn't throw your deck balance off in theory. Mm. Um, so, so, that, so for me, that's one, the first thing I'm looking to do. Okay, I want to add this thing. What else does a similar thing? Again, assume my deck, I'm, I'm happy with how the deck is playing. Because not only does that make things easier, what you it, it avoids problems as well. Because I think I, definitely over the years, I've found myself in a situation where like I've made changes over the course of a year or whatever to a deck hey, I'm going to add this thing and I'm going to pull out a creature and then like I'm going to add this other thing and I guess I pulled out a creature. and But I'm fine. I have enough creatures in the deck. Until I look back on it and realize, oh, I've pulled out four creatures from this deck yeah. and it, me it messed up the balance of what I was doing without even really realizing it until at some point I'm like, this deck just is not, why is this deck not playing right? And I'll look back and be like, oh, because I'm, I'm running, you know, 17 creatures and I was running 23. Like that's a thing that, that, that does slowly happen and is super easy to miss. So that's, so I've found by, by making swaps like that, I avoid that problem to begin with. I don't find myself in those situations nearly as much as I used to when I kind of focus on trying to treat cards as an upgrade versus an addition whenever possible. Yeah, I mean, if it's okay for me to like bounce right off of that, this is the lesson that I learned the hard way with my Rayhan and Ishai deck, which is sort of my deck full of pinatas because I get a bunch of plus one counters and then I want to move those plus one counters onto a thing like Alenda or a thing like Triskelion, like a thing that I can, it's a payoff for having all those plus one counters and I use Rayhan to move those counters onto everything like that. And over time I was like, ah, oh, you know, I can probably, I don't need to run all of those pinata cards. I really want to run a whole bunch of these new, very spicy looking cards that put a bunch of plus one counters onto things. And that changed the ratios, not even of just like the number of creatures or sorcerers that I had, but I had more counter gatherers than I had pinatas to put those counters into. So whenever someone was trying to remove my stuff, I didn't have a place to put the counters for a big reward. And I was like, why isn't this deck working anymore? Do I need to take this deck apart? Cause it's just not functioning. Well, it's because I wasn't paying attention to the fact that over two years I had reduced the number of pinatas in a deck that was supposed to be about pinatas. I'm saying the word pinata a lot for an EDH podcast right now, but like, <laughs> yeah, that is the thing that I also learned the hard way. It, it, it like those, those categories I think serve that, that very helpful purpose purpose and it's very wild well you, you've kind of like microsoft worded your deck you've like added features and added things <laughs> over the course of several years and then found yourself rendering it unusable <laughs> God. Do, do you have a particular plan when you go into this matt is there something like you're looking to do too are you looking to like try to treat things as an upgrade or try to swap something that, that's similar to it or, or do you not have a plan so typically when i'm going in there i'm trying to keep things in the same categories i i if i'm making shifts from one say i'm cutting a creature and adding utility spell it's not going to be because a new card is is coming in or i saw that it's going to be because i'm tinkering with the ratios but if i see new cards coming out i try 
to make those upgrades. You know, is this card doing kind of the same thing? It's staying in the same category, but is it doing that role better? I know a, a specific example for me was in my Ukeeman Kazir deck, I used to run Ranger's Guy, which is just target creature gets hexproof and plus one, plus one until end of turn. Well, then I saw Snakeskin Veil, which gives a oh. plus one, plus one counter to a creature and also gives a hexproof. Same mana cost, one mana, or one green mana for an instant that protects my thing. But in a plus one, plus one counters deck, that Snakeskin Veil, like that was almost a pure strict. I hate the term strict upgrade because people use it <laughs> in, when it doesn't belong so many times. But in this instance, it was because the deck it was built to play around with plus one, plus one counters. So... What one question that I kind of ask myself when I'm going through these new sets is what are, what are the draft archetypes in the set? And are any of those themes, do they have overlap with decks that I already have? That often will help guide and give me something specific to look for instead of just generally browsing a set because with so many sets, it's hard to keep up and just you kind of get lost, you kind of get overwhelmed. So having a way to guide my research definitely helps me kind of navigate this this world of eight sets a month. Mm-hmm. So I want to I, I want to go back to some language Joey used actually because I think it's kind of relevant here. He talked about categories of cards, mm-hmm. and I think that's an important thing to remember too. And, and, and here's a real world example of of an issue I had with this recently. I wanted to add Candlekeep Inspiration to my Talrend Sky Summoner deck. So Talrend, so so Candlekeep Inspiration is is a five mana spell, four and a blue. Until end of turn, creatures you control have a base power and toughness XX where X is the number of cards you own in exile or in your graveyard that are sorceries, instants, and or have an adventure. So it's a buff spell functionally in that that deck. Mm. It's immune to graveyard hate because it cares, you know, if someone exiles your graveyard for the most they usually aren't shuffling it back in. It's almost always an exile effect. Mm-hmm. It's just a way for me to kill people. It's like the, the equivalent in that deck of a blue overrun. I have a ton of instants and sorceries. By the time I'm going to try to kill somebody with those drakes, I've got a bunch in my graveyard. The drakes by default are two twos, so like I don't care if they have a base power and toughness XX. I'm definitely going to have more than two instant or sorceries in the deck. So in the graveyard, so I wanted to add that spell as kind of a as a win condition, but I got hung up on it being a sorcery. So I'm like looking through my sorceries and be like, what do I want to replace to find a slot for Candlekeep Inspiration? I don't want to pull this out. I don't want to pull that out because this is a really useful draw spell. This is a really useful whatever. And I I, I just couldn't figure it out. And then I realized, like, I'm thinking in terms of card types. I don't need to swap out a sorcery for a sorcery. I need to swap out a kind of win condition based on combat damage for another win condition based on combat damage. And once I, like, got over that and started kind of expanding my, my... my lens and like widening, widening what I was looking at. Coat of Arms then caught my eye, which is an which is an artifact. Each creature gets plus one plus one for each other creature on the battlefield that shares at least one creature type with it. Coat of Arms is a is a good spell in that deck. I would drop at a certain point in the game and swing at somebody with, you know, half a dozen drakes, and they're now suddenly five fives or six sixes, and I kill somebody, unless they have a fog or unless something else, you know, <laughs> goes goes awry that I wasn't planning for. And then there's a coat of arms sitting there buffing other people's creatures because it doesn't say just my creatures. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So it, I've gotten burned by that before. I, I, it's definitely helped. You know, it was it was useful enough to keep it in the deck, but it's also burned me before. Well, once I saw that, I'm like, oh, Candle Keep Inspiration is going to do the same thing. I almost always just use coat of arms for an alpha strike. So it was functionally a sorcery anyway. And it was a sorcery with downside. It was a sorcery that occasionally stuck around 
and made me lose the game next turn because somebody <laughs> fogged me and they killed me. Can I keep inspiration was all the upside and none of the downside. But I didn't see that right away because I was hung up on looking at sorceries instead of looking at like categories or pods of cards or something like you had said. So anyway, that's a long ways of saying long story to explain why the the category language you use is really, really important. I think that's something to bear in mind when you're making swaps is is really focus on what the card does versus what it is. Well, and here's the other axis upon which this all hinges. It can't just be like it, it's a categories, not card types, but like a categories or Matt, as you put it, like the card, the ratios of certain uh, different types of effects that you want in the deck. But it also has to function on your mana curve. That's the other problem that makes us even more difficult. Like when that new Myogen of Grim Betrayal came out, that's the eight mana black Myogen. Um, that when it, you know, the Myogens all come in with an indestructibility counter on them if you cast them from your hand. And then this one uh, says you can remove that indestructibility counter to put onto the battlefield under your control all creature cards in all graveyards that were put there from anywhere this turn. Beautiful card from my Conrad deck. My Sir Conrad deck was like, oh, this looks amazing. I want this so bad. This is such a great effect. This is juicy. This is delicious. This is wonderful. I'm going to get back all the, all the creatures. It's going to be great. And when trying to look through things like, I'm trying to make updates for that deck. I can't go based on category for this. I can't like replace some two mana reanimation spell in that deck with an eight mana big reanimation spell like this because those are a different class of card. This card isn't competing with the other reanimation spells that I have in that deck. It's competing against the other cards that I have that are eight mana. And there's already a lot of those. Like there's there's kind of more than I feel like the deck even can get away with, but it's still only like seven cards in the deck or something. So this card has to compete only against a party of seven. So that makes that even much more difficult to try and make upgrades when the biggest and most sparkly looking cards are actually sometimes the hardest to justify because like this card is competing in my deck against cards like Rise of the Dark Realms. I'm not cutting Rise of the Dark Realms for the Myosian. This is where it gets even harder. Yeah, when we talk about, you know, a few episodes ago, making sure that you have those veggie cards in your deck, it's not that Reshape the Earth or some of these big cards <laughs> that you're talking about, Joey, are competing against, you know, those those veggie type of cards, those those cheap and efficient cards that make your deck function. It's competing against all the other big game winners. So, mm. you know, the Great Henge isn't competing against Wood Elves, for example, in, in my green decks. Great Henge is competing against... Rishkar's expertise and the the big engine type of cards, it it just it feels weird. For sometimes I see people saying, "Well, I have to cut you know a, a clean and efficient ramp spell or or a, a signet from my deck in order to make room for this big game winner." And and that's where I think people's ratios of of decks and cards in those decks gets off because they're cutting out so many of those cards that enable the big flashy cards. So they end up with too many of the big flashy cards and they kind of like what Dana was talking about. Why does my deck work anymore? I don't have any, you know, ways to get to that, that end game. And because people are so focused on the end game. Yeah. Mana value is absolutely a way where you can Microsoft word your deck up. Because I, <laughs> that's something in the, in, in the past where I, I've definitely done that as well. Where like, okay, I'm going to pull out this, you know, four mana value card run the six one. But like my deck has got a low curve. I, I, I can afford to do that. And, and I can. And then I repeat that process a month and a half later. And I repeat the process two months after that. And next thing I know, like, my entire mana curve's out of whack. And one thing didn't do that. It was doing that change multiple times over the course of a year. And with the sped up process we have now, it's even easier. Um, one thing I had started doing then even to combat that 
was in the changelog I had, um, and you can find, if, if you look at our decks, I actually have a changelog in the comment section in Architect where I would note I'm pulling this card and adding this card. I used to, at the very end of the line, put in parentheses what the mana value change was. Did I add two? Did I minus three? Whatever. And then I would just periodically like look at the trends and be like, okay, this one's this one's fine. I, I added two, I minus one, I added three, I minus four. You know, the mana curve didn't really change too much, just from a glance. And then I would see somewhere I'm like, oh wow, I added I, my my average CMC for this deck went from you know 2.6 up to 3.2, and I didn't even realize it. So um, that's definitely one you have to be cautious of for sure. Matt, I love that you've got the spreadsheet and the archives of dad jokes, and Dana has the spreadsheet and archives of <laughs> commander deck log changes. Like, <laughs> this is a, yes. it's a fun energy. Well, and, and we we know that Dana keeps his spreadsheets, and, and that's, but that with all the sets coming out, it also is a very, very helpful tool to <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, have a deck list in front of you and have a, have a column of these are the cards from the new set that I'm excited about. These are the cards that I want to put into decks. And then know what you're you're aiming to do because if you just sit down with a pile and, and kind of make them, you know, one by one like we used to back in the day. Um, oh my god, I sound really old saying that, but um, <laughs> here we are. Um, but yeah, just just sitting there and and kind of making the decisions with just the cards in front of you. Like sometimes you know if you're if you're trying to really min max and, and make sure you're making the right decision for the deck. Um, sometimes it does take a little bit more dedication and maybe that's why I'm lagging behind because I just, I lack that dedication because as we like to joke about, it takes me a little bit to to update my decks. So, so I actually, I want to talk about the frequency that we update decks because that's a good point. We joked about it in the past and I'd like to come back to that perhaps after we challenge some stats. Oh, you there it is. stealing my segues. <laughs> Sly. Dana, coming for my job. Yes, I think that's a great idea. And I had some other stuff to, to get around to um, on a similar subject as well. But yes, we'll get to it after challenging those stats. Matt, do you mind starting us off this week? Because I'm not going to let Dana go first. He stole my segue. <laughs> I, I sure can. So I'm going to con- continue the trends that we have set up of being Baldur's Gate apologists. So oh my goodness. <laughs> Commander Legends Baldur's Gate has has been one of our favorite sets uh, of the podcast. It, it it did so many positive things for the for the format, and I just keep seeing more and more just wonderful little things about the set that it, just people don't give it credit for. So this week, I'm going to challenge a common from Commander Legends Baldur's Gate, and that card is a background. So it's a legendary enchantment, and this one is Master Chef. So Master Chef is two and a green that says commander creatures you own have this creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it and other creatures you control enter the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on them. So basically your commander comes into play with a plus one plus one counter on it and then it gives all the other creatures that come in afterwards a plus one plus one counter. If you have a plus one plus one counter deck, this thing is absolutely fantastic, especially if you have partners mm. as your commanders. That means you have two creatures. Mm-hmm. I just putting backgrounds into the 99 of all of your decks, and I said all, that your deck probably has some some slot for a background. These these are just so good. People think they have to go into the command zone. They do not at all. So one deck I'm specifically challenging Master Chef on is one that actually doesn't care specifically about plus one plus one counters, but it cares about modified creatures. And that deck is Chishiro the Shattered Blade, which is two red green for a legendary snake samurai. 
And it says whenever a legend or whenever an aura or equipment enters the battlefield under your control, you create a 2-2 red spirit creature token with menace. And at the beginning of your end step, you put a plus one plus one counter on each modified creature you control. So modified cares about just any type of modification to it, whether it's a plus one plus one counter, whether it's an equipment, aura, any other types of, of counters, those all count to consider it modified. So Master Chef has your commander enter the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter and all subsequent creatures, maybe say perhaps the two two creature tokens you're making, <laughs> also enter the battlefield with those plus one plus one counters, which automatically makes them modified. You don't need to worry about equipment or auras or anything like that. It's doing that from the enchantment on the battlefield already. So you're automatically getting all of your creatures modified, which then puts more plus one plus one counters on them. I just love that this basically makes all of your creatures modified, even if they don't have an equipment or whatever on them, because that's a finite resource. You may only have two equipments on the battlefield, but you have five creatures. Well, Master Chef is just going to help you get all of those creatures modified. I just, I, I love the synergies that these backgrounds are giving just in the 99 of decks. Chishiro absolutely would love it because... It can modify itself. It can modify all your other creatures. And it's just a very, very low investment. Um, so only 8% of Toshiro decks are doing this. And I think that is kind of silly. I think a lot of folks need to give Master Chef a, a, a look, especially if you're playing a plus one, plus one counter deck in general. But yeah, uh, it's also fun thinking about this snake samurai in like the Iron Chef kitchen, <laughs> doing all these Master <laughs> Chef types of things, cutting up Bobby Flay, whatever you want to look at. Wow. Um, it's just a fun picture, but also it's just a very, very powerful card. Only 2,600 decks are playing Master Chef, and that's just that's just too low. Yeah, backgrounds in the 99. Like, th this does, it. yeah, just a simple little common, but it is shocking how much work that little Master Chef enchantment actually puts in. So I'm way on board with this, Matt, and I'm actually going to follow this up with another enchantment from my challenge set this week that is also inspired by a card that I've seen you play recently. It's another enchantment called Gossamer Chains, ah. um, which is really annoying and i love you for bringing it into my life um i'm kidding i think we've actually maybe challenged it in the past i'm not entirely positive but like even if we have already challenged it it's currently only showing up in 778 decks right now and that is far too low gossamer chains is a white enchantment double white pips and the activated ability on this enchantment says return it to its owner's hand and target unblocked creature deals no combat damage this turn so this is an enchantment that repeatedly sends itself back to your hand to blink the biggest creature that's trying to come and attack you that's amazing. Matt, you played it in your Council of Four deck, I believe, because mm -hmm. this is a repeatable way for you to consistently play a second spell every turn to get your commander's extra benefits. You can play this in any number of Enchantress decks too, though, like Sithis or Alila to make more fairy tokens as well. This is a repeatable enchantment that defends you. And with a lot of Enchantress decks, that means you're going to draw a lot of extra cards as well. This card's amazing. This card needs to show up in way more than 778 decks, and it's only a quarter. So, Matt, thank you for tormenting me with Gossamer Chains. This card's incredible. It is a pretty fantastic card. Um, if you have an Enchantress deck that's playing white, it's fantastic. There's just so many applications for it. It's just, it's just very, very good card that just got forgotten about. Mm -hmm. All right, Dana, let's rat it out with you. So my uh, challenge of stats this week was brought to us by listener nicer underscore Spencer. Um, and his suggestion is Withering Gaze, which is an old card that's only been printed in Portal and Ninth Edition. It's two and a blue for a sorcery. Target opponent reveals their hand, and you draw a card for each forest and green card in it. 
I think you want to run this in a deck that maybe cares about you doing a thing with instants or sorceries. So, so worst case scenario, it's never dead. Talran Sky Summoner, for example, would be one where it's going to at least make you a Drake. Um, there's enough decks that care about you casting spells. But the important thing to note here is everybody plays green. Um, <laughs> four, four of the five most popular commanders in EDH rack are green. Eight of the ten most popular commanders are green. It's really easy to have this just draw you two cards and there's plenty of situations where this can like wind up drawing you four or five cards, particularly if you're maybe playing something that does a little bit of like force draw or hugs. Mm. Um, wheel decks might take advantage of this. Things like Felda Griff or Queen or Kami of the Crescent Moon. There's not a ton of downside to it. You're probably going to get one or two cards in a worst case scenario. For three mana, that's not necessarily terrible. There's a bunch of upside in Withering Gaze to only be in 92 decks. I've actually been testing it out since it was recommended to me. I've cast it twice so far, and I've drawn two, and I've drawn five. It, it, it's not amazing, but like that's not bad. It, it, like I, I'm willing to talk about it as a challenge of stats card because <laughs> drawing five for three is pretty decent, and it made me a Drake in the process. I've liked it enough to keep running into my Talran deck, and I think it's worth looking at more than just 92 decks where it's sitting right now. Yeah, that's an interesting pick. I'm way into that. Also, fun fact, Withering Gaze is what they will call my husband and I when we're 80. Yeah, we um, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. How did you not open the show with that joke, Joey? That was bold choice. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I guess now we're going to get back into our main topic now. That's, that's there how we go. <laughs> that's how I yanked the segue thing back from, from you, Dana. <laughs> Forcefully. Yeah, yeah. Just like hard left turn. Okay, now you had uh, brought up a subject that you wanted to get to. So I'll let you um, uncliffhanger us now as we get back into talking about updates for decks. So so in the past, we kind of jokingly talked about how, you know, Matt would wait for multiple sets before he would actually upgrade his decks. And you and I, Joey, tended to not do that. Um, I, I have kind of a, a system in place, actually, or, or I, I have had one recently where on the final day that that previews came out when like we got the full official spoiler list, I would just take an hour-ish and go over all of the cards that were spoiled. Number one, you know, you're kind of aware throughout the week of new things coming out, particularly if you're a content creator. You're just talking about stuff with other people. It's something you're you tend to be aware of. But I still like to sit down and spend an hour just going over them anyway. It's useful to have that knowledge to talk about on the show. And I would then, when I see a card that would catch my eye, I just add it to my spreadsheet of things to consider for whichever commander deck I was considering it for. And then a couple of days later, I would sit down and like actually look at making cuts. Hmm. Um, and that was something I did every single set. Matt didn't. Matt, how often did you use to frequent? Did you actually upgrade your decks? Uh, so it used to be. Probably every six months or so, I would go through sure. the past few sets, unless there was something that just absolutely jumped out at me. You know, the big splashy cards are big splashy cards. They're easy to uh, to get your attention and get you to, to update decks and up and you know get some new cards. Um, but typically, I would go through every six months or so and and kind of look at the past few sets. Uh, that was just what was kind of uh, palatable for me, I guess. Sure. I have gotten better about well or worse, depending on on whose bank account you're looking at. <laughs> Um, about this, but yeah, I, I have, uh, gotten into upgrading my decks a little bit more often, I should say, um, 
because yes, it, it is nice to be able to to keep up and you know especially with streaming, like it's it's fun to be able to show off the new cards and, and you know have those interactions. So social pressure has gotten me to update my decks more often. I will admit. Well, so here's the here's the point of uh, of reason I want to talk about this and, and ask about it. A couple of years back, I, I think that was a perfectly reasonable way to handle things. I enjoyed doing it my way. You enjoyed doing it your way. But I don't think you were wrong. And I like, I could have seen myself in a situation doing a similar thing to the way you handled it. Um, except <laughs> what I've now discovered is I had a couple decks that I was debating maybe taking apart. So I hadn't updated them for a few sets. And the problem I then discovered was, there are so many cards coming out so frequently that if I didn't stay on top of it every time a new set came out, I would just be hopelessly behind. There would mm. be then too many cards to try to remember that I had had originally like mm -hmm. considered for the deck to go through and do. So at this point, I, I'm not updating decks every time a set comes out because I enjoy it. I'm doing it out of self-preservation. <laughs> if I don't, if I oh, don't no. do it, I'm not going to remember all the cards that I was thinking about putting in that deck. Oh, no. Well, and I think that's why, you know, we, we talk about advanced filters on EDH rec as being an incredibly helpful tool. Mm. Advanced filters and advanced searches on Scryfall, mm -hmm. to me, are equally as valuable because then you're able to, you know, look at specific sets. So, say you missed a set, Dana, you can look at the most recent couple sets or cards that were printed in 2022, anything like that. And that's really what helps just being able to Break down the information so you're not completely overwhelmed is is incredibly one of the most, or I should say, one of the most helpful things about Scryfall, I would say. But also making sure you're not trying to just over overdo it. I talked earlier about how I would look for sets, you know, what are, what are the, the archetypes and that way I can ignore all the, all the white noise, all the fluff. Mm. That's something too, just parsing it all out and making sure that you're, you're looking at a smaller amount of information, but also too... Know what cards you want to cut. Uh, if if you have in the back of your mind, okay, these cards have kind of been underperforming. These are the ones I'm looking for upgrades of. That also will help direct it because that way you're not looking at a bunch of creatures when you're, you're trying to find some utility cards or, okay, this doesn't draw very many cards. I need to work on that. You, it, you know what you're trying to replace. That means you also know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's a huge thing because people just look at, okay, every card in my deck is is battling for a, a spot in the deck. Well, is it really with this new set that doesn't really have anything for it? Yeah. Yeah. The, this, the, the parsing it down in that way is a big thing that really resonates with me, Matt. Like, honestly, a way that I kind of shorthand this is by applying like a a buzzword or like a heuristic to each of my decks because I've got like I, I mm -hmm. actually literally don't know how many decks that I have uh, is it 12 is it 13 is it 14 is it 8 right now I do I do not know but what I do know are the specific archetypes that they fall into much like you said almost like limited archetypes so if I think I might need to look for cards like if, if I'm looking through a whole set there are certain things that I'll look for like reanimation my Conrad deck like if I see a reanimation spell Conrad is associated with that in my head or if I see a card that maybe steals stuff from other people like ooh, I have a Tasha deck right now so maybe that would be like the way that i associate so i can see ah that's a thievery card let me consider that for my tasha deck or if i see a card with an odd converted mana cost that automatically defaults to oh yannette like those are the mental shortcuts that i put in there just so that i can keep up with it because it's the only way that i can when there's so, there are like 200 new cards and i've got 
a, a, a genuinely, I don't know how many decks that I'm considering updating all of those. And those buzzwords help me filter that down. Although even that does come with its pitfalls. Yeah, but, but if you have to go through and like find reanimator spells that you might have wanted to add for five sets versus one set, <laughs> that just becomes impossible. And then you're like, oh, but I, I forgot that that the Bill Hader card from the Saturday Night Live Secret Lair was perfect <laughs> for this deck. And I just totally forgot about that set. And you're like, I, yeah, I, I wish I would have remembered because then I would have made that change. And I, I, it totally escaped me that the, the butt implant sticker that you can put in the card gives all your Kardashians plus four plus four. And I didn't do that for this deck. <laughs> and now my Kardashians is- deck is not as good as it could be. And that, that was six sets ago. And now I can't find it. So <laughs> I don't even know what's happening. Right, anymore. Then you're just so far behind. It's tough to catch up. Exactly. You forgot about those, those cards too, Matt, for your decks because you just didn't stay caught up. I'm not sure how to deal with that. So I am, I'm going to, I'm going to roll it back. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was surreal, Dana. Thank you. Um, so yeah, the, the heuristic strike is one that I try um, in order to keep, to keep up with it. Cause like Dana, you're right. It is absolutely a lot. And having those buzzwords is a way that I can like try to keep up with it, but that does still make me sometimes miss cards that I want. Uh, so for example, there's the card master of ceremonies that came out and the immediate buzzword that I attached to that card is politics, because at the beginning of your turn, you will have small, tiny deals with each other opponent. Either you and one opponent will draw a card or you and another opponent will like make a treasure token or you and another opponent will make uh, one, a one, one soldier token. Like every opponent gets a choice and therefore I immediately assume it like, okay, politics card in my brain. I don't associate it with tokens card in my brain, but I should have because I slept on this card for ages from my Felice deck. When like what this card actually does is potentially draw me a bunch of cards or make me a bunch of tokens, which means my commander would make a bunch of spirit tokens. So like my buzzword strategy has so far been very helpful, but it's starting to not work as well as it used to anymore. And it's meaning that I'm missing even more of those cards now too. So the buzzword strategy is one that I, I appreciate. I like having those heuristics and those shortcuts, but it's one that I need to investigate even further because then I wind up in what I guess Dana is now calling the Bill Hader secret layer Kardashian problem of cards that you don't even realize were there because even your own ways of trying to grapple with all of the stuff going out can still sometimes have pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and and at this point too, like the Bill Hader card has been outclassed by Tommy Lee Jones from the fugitive from that oh secret layer. So like we've already had, I added it to my deck, I would have already replaced it anyway. And it's, there's just too much. I don't even know what, what what's happening with this podcast anymore. This is <laughs> all right. This has gone places. It has gone some places. I have a question for you guys that is related to a discussion that we had at the beginning of the show. Earlier on in the show, we discussed a lot of like organizing things by categories or having certain ratios of effects, such as mana acceleration or card advantage or win conditions. And we were talking about like direct upgrades or adding more cards in that are already doing a thing that the deck we know it wants to do. But what? what allows you to break the mold when an exciting new card comes around that does something your deck doesn't actually already do? The example for me here is the card Devilish Valet in my Martin Stromgold deck. Martin Stromgold is for me a mono red tokens deck and it goes wide. The commander pumps up all of the creatures by going wide and Devilish Valet is a standalone card that doubles its own power whenever creatures enter the battlefield under my control and that thing itself just goes tall and that is a very different style of damage for that deck that I wouldn't normally, that doesn't quite fit into the rest of the stuff that my tokens deck is doing where I want to go wide. It is attacking on a different axis, but I was very enchanted by this card and I wanted to try it out. And as soon as I did try it out, I was delighted by it. It got up to like 600 something power. And I was really happy that I could attack one opponent by going wide and another opponent by going tall. 
But man, cut on uh, making a cut on that was very, very hard because I couldn't, it didn't fit into the same types of go wide categories that I'd already had. So Matt, for you, when it comes to those types of things, you're kind of breaking the mold on the categories for your deck. Do you have any tips or any things that you would do to try out cards that go a little bit, do a little bit of a left turn compared to what your deck is already doing when you see something that is exciting and splashy? How do you go about adding in a card that is a little bit newer? So I I make sure that in the back of my head, I know why I'm doing it and I'm not forcing something. I'm, I'm not doing the 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 square peg in a round hole type of situation where I'm taking this big splashy fancy card and I'm adding it in just because well I feel like it um, <laughs> I, I try to be a little more intentional than that I'm, I'm I get wanting to play the cards that make you feel feelings I I abs that's the reason we play Commander I absolutely love playing the cards because we can't play them on any other formats but I also with a majority of my decks. I try to be a little more guided. So if I'm adding in one of those big splashy cards, I know what the deck doesn't need any more help doing and what that deck can give on. Um, so if if the card maybe is a, a real splashy win condition, but I already draw a bunch of cards, I might take out one of the card draw effects to to make room for that if I'm messing with the ratio. So I'm I'm not just kind of throwing a dart at the wall. Um, I know sometimes it feels like that, but I'm at least keeping in mind what does the deck not struggle with. Uh, and that's where I'm going to take a little bit from the deck in order to make room for the new thing that's coming in that wasn't really expected. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, For me, what I wind up doing is, particularly if I just can't figure it out, if I'm like, I, I've been looking at, I've been staring at this for, you know, eight hours and I've, I've begun to get dehydrated from thinking and <laughs> my family is wondering where I am. And I, I, I gotta, I gotta come to a conclusion here. I gotta put this card in. What I will do is, is, is make a change, but I will make a change with, with, with it in mind of not being a long-term change. Mm. So like, okay, you know what? I'm playing a blue deck. I want to try out this new blue card. Um, you know what? I, I know cyclonic rift is crazy. Good. But I'm just going to pull Cyclonic Rift out for now and make maybe later on, I, if I, the card doesn't work, I will put Rift back in that spot. And hmm. if my deck doesn't have Rift in it, I'm not going to feel terrible for pulling out a staple either. So like I, I tend to, if I can't come to something, I will pull out cards like that with the with the intent of like, okay, I know that's it's a generically useful card that isn't a key part to the, how the deck functions. So I'm just going to pull that thing out. And if I want to add it back in later because this card's bad, I'll add it back in. And that's actually one of the reasons I don't find myself running many tutors anymore mm -hmm. because I would get to that point where I'm like, I'm going to pull Demonic Tutor out of this black deck that I want to add a black card into because it's a generically useful card. Me pulling out Demonic Tutor isn't going to change how my deck functions because I'm not playing the kind of, you know, CEDH level deck where you need to be playing tutors to like find whatever that line you need to win the game is. So I, I can just pull that out and... Then I found myself liking the card, and I'm like, well, I, I'm fine with the tutor. I'll just leave the tutors out. So like, that's one of the reasons I don't run many tutors anymore, as well as Cyclonic Rift. I've, I've pulled that one out, too, of a lot of decks. And in part, that was in a lot of cases because I couldn't figure out what to cut. So I found myself pulling out a kind of a, a staple that wasn't necessarily important to the specific thing that deck was doing. So anyway, that, that that's kind of my if I can't complete anything better pull out a staple that isn't integral to the deck. And if I need to back, add it back later, I'll add it back later. But they, for, for now, it'll at least be, it'll at least allow me to test that card out. I 
really dig that actually like it's almost like you're auditioning the card against known quantities yeah and sure. if the card impresses then you're like all right well i knew the known quantity but like now i have a slightly more fun and a slightly more original feeling thing maybe as well so like i actually kind of dig that like that is a and it's also giving you a practical thing upon which to judge it like I mean, no card is going to measure up to the level of Cyclonic Rift, obviously. Right. But it also, that's not the thing that you're auditioning. You're auditioning, here's a solid card that is definitely very good. Is this card, like, would I prefer to have this card in my hand or the Cyclonic Rift? Like, which one's actually giving me a good time when I draw it? Like, that's the thing that you're evaluating there. And that is actually a good frame of reference to figure out as opposed to, like, cutting a land or cutting a card in a completely different category. Like, carding the known to discover some unknown, auditioning it against those kind of into that i think i probably fall more on on matt's side where i'll pull from the categories that are a little bit more well known or a little bit more well established i think that's been my strategy but dana i quite like your take as well that's very good well it's also it's also fun to if you're trying to do a few cards at a time take out the cards that you know are all stars a to see how the deck performs without it like are you maybe over-reliant on certain cards, but also see how well those new cards can maybe carry a deck and, and how well they, you know, that how high is that ceiling? Can I get them to perform at their best? That's something too that I've done a couple times before when, okay, well, I have five cards and I'm not really sure how they're going to do and I don't really know how to make room for them. Sometimes that will give you a little bit of guidance too. And maybe you, you come to realize, okay, so this card was overperformed. And then of the five cards that I swapped out for a few games, this one, I didn't really miss it. And so mm -hmm. sometimes you find that by taking cards out, you realize maybe it really wasn't as important as you thought it was. Maybe that you were emotionally attached to it or whatever. And, and I I keep so many bad cards in decks because I'm emotionally attached to them. So I totally get it. But making sure that, you know, you when you cut that card, was it really as important as you thought it was to begin with? That's a, a, something that I surprise myself sometimes when I, I do that. I, what, what's that implement of ferocity in your Ukima deck is the one that I don't don't besmirch <laughs> how powerful that staple of a card is it it puts a plus one plus one counter onto a, a creature and it draws me a card what can you say Cyclonic Rift doesn't put plus one plus one counters on things but that's the kind of a good example that's the kind of a good example of what I'm talking about to a degree like objectively is a green deck better if it's running Oracle of Moldiah, for example, probably in almost every circumstance, green decks almost always kill people via, you know, creature beats and being able to see those creatures come up and playing off the top of your library. And like Oracle's a fantastic card, but like how many really interesting stories does Oracle of Moldiah necessarily make either? Mm -hmm. And there's not that many decks where it necessarily like adds to the specific thing your deck is doing. It's just a good card. Whereas some like implements of ferocity, that happens to kind of synergize <laughs> with your deck is also going to be more interesting. Like, is is it more powerful? Probably not. But like, is it going to make for a better story? Is it going to make that deck maybe more fun to play and to play against? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Matt's literally making it iconic. Yeah, <laughs> as, as a part of. The I'm I'm doing my darndest. <laughs> well, and and but that actually like unironically here now though like Matt you mentioned what was the card earlier? Uh, Snakeskin Veil I think was the the defensive mm -hmm. card that puts a plus one counter and gives hexproof for a turn. 
really good, really, really good. And this is the other thing that is so difficult about making these updates is that it's not just with the big splashy rares. It's not just the myogens that are catching my eye anymore these days. It's also all of the commons and uncommons. It's the Felstingers. It's the reckless impulses. It's the slip out the back. It's the Tamiyo safekeeping. Oh my goodness. Tamiyo safekeeping. New MVP for, for a lot of the decks of mine that I put it into. And Dana, I know you feel the same way. Like these, these commons and uncommons are also drawing my eye now, which is why every time a set comes out, I feel like each one of my decks wants minimum five cards, but I just can't actually afford to do that. And the weird practicality of this sometimes is that the splashiest card that I want to add to my deck is not the one that makes the cut. The Tamiyo safekeeping is sometimes the one that actually winds up making the cut. And it's just very wild. But it again, I guess, comes down to are some of these cards fulfilling a thing a sl just slightly better in than the other stuff I've already got going on? Are these cards filling in a gap, making the deck work on a new axis that it wasn't already? And is that worth sacrificing in other categories? And also, are, are these cards fun? Are these cards creating stories? And in the case of these commons and uncommons, I think a lot of the times the answer is yes, because I rarely expect them coming because I have to go digging to find some of these. And it's so rewarding when you do, both when you find them to put them into your deck and when you actually execute them in game. When you have those implement of ferocities come up in games and it actually turns out to be lethal, yeah, those moments are also really fun, but it all just compounds in such a bizarre way. Basically, what I'm saying is that it's not just the rares and the mythics that are making cuts and adds hard. Even the commons and uncommons are also making my life difficult. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and by adding such a with such a deep pool of playable cards every set that comes out, you're creating also kind of this weird like Ship of Theseus situation too, where you're like, I had this deck a year ago and I've now replaced 46 cards in it. Uh, by swapping out five or six every set, is it the same deck as it was <laughs> a year ago when like all of the pieces had gotten swapped out? That's that's something that's really come up with, with my Jury Master of the Review deck. I built Jury basically around sacrificing treasures to put counters on Jury. Um, and when I did that, there were only a few cards in the game that made treasures. I, I, I had some pretty bad cards in there that made treasures. And we've gotten so many treasure cards since then that have been clear upgrades for that deck that it doesn't even remotely look like, look at the deck it was at a year and a half ago. So <laughs> it's doing the same thing with an almost entirely new set of cards. That's interesting, I guess, but it's also a, a difficult thing. It's an interesting thing to think about as well. The deck is different because there's different cards in it, but it's also tough to compare to how it used to play because it's it's entirely changed. It's It's <laughs> functionally a different deck. Dana, you've just broken my brain in half right now because the Ship of Theseus, aka the Grandfather's Axe philosophical quandary, is my favorite philosophical problem. <laughs> and now you've put it, now you've just integrated it into the EDH world too. And I think I'm about to, I'm I'm really happy and also not happy about this because well, I'm about well, to spiral here. That's wonderful and horrible well, at the same time. Oh my god. Well, why don't we take the the leftover deck and put it into Schrodinger's deck box? <laughs> See if it's my deck or or if it's still my deck. I think you just broke Joey. I think I did. I probably did. I love, On that note, I love let's, you guys. Let's, let's 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 wrap this up. Let's peace out. Yeah, let's call this episode to a close, fellas. If your listeners want to get in touch with us, work is it then they can find us all. Matt, go ahead. Oh my god, that's beautiful. We can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-55. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings we are streaming. So if you want to see some of these upgrades we've made over the course of our <laughs> playing careers and see it in action, twitch.tv slash EDHRECCAST Wednesday evenings. And Dana, how about you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me having philosophical existential crises about magic at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production work on the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights and potentially even more philosophical problems. But until then, remember... EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>